Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. All right. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you. So I had an intro written to this sermon yesterday up till 3.30 p.m. One second. Oh, what an embarrassment. Cyclones, they suck. Let's go Panthers. Am I right? Go Cats. I'm done with Golden Cardinal. Never again. Never again. So I wrote a new intro. Actually, I didn't. I just wrote a line because I had to throw that one away. It says uh, engagement to Natalie. So that makes me happy. So we'll, uh, we'll not be de- depressed anymore. We'll talk about my engagement to Natalie. So uh, my wife's name is Natalie. We got married five years ago. And when we started dating, it became very obvious very quickly to the two of us that we wanted to get married. So very early on, I told her I love her. She replied that she loved me. Whoop, got that one. That's great. Uh, and just soon, we began to talk about our future together, what our lives could look like if we got married. And uh, the time came for me to propose, for, me to, for us to get engaged. And there were two unique events leading up to the proposal that stuck with me. Two unique events that I will always remember. So the first was asking her father, Gary, for his permission to marry her. And the second was buying a ring. So I sat down with Gary. We went to Smokey D's Barbecue in Des Moines. Great. If you're going to ask a girl to marry, you know, a father for his permission, take him to barbecue. That's a great place to do it. And I sat across the table from him and realized that it is one thing to say to all of your college buddies back at the apartment, I'm going to marry this girl. It is a completely different thing to sit across her father who has loved her her entire life and say, Gary, I want to marry your daughter and be with her for my whole life to take care of her the way that you've taken care of her. Do I have your permission? completely different experience. It's one thing to tell all your buddies, hey, I want to marry this girl. It's one thing to even tell her. It is another thing, the significance of that moment to tell her dad, do I have your permission to propose? So then the next day he gave me permission. Whoop, whoop. Next day I get in the car, didn't waste any time, drove to the ring shop. And as I'm driving to the ring shop, I have this thought. I, I go, you know what? If there was any hesitation at all that I wanted to spend my entire life with Nadley, yesterday and today would have revealed that. These are the two tests, asking her father for permission to marry her and buying a ring. If there was any hesitation that I had whatsoever, these two events would have revealed that hesitation. It doesn't matter what I have been saying, what is actually true would be revealed today and yesterday as I'm asking her dad and buying this ring. It would have revealed, that was the two tests to test whether or not what I was saying when I said, I love you to Natalie was genuine. And that is true in all sorts of things in life. There are so many things that it's easy to say, but then there is something that tests whether or not what we say is genuine. So we have tons of phrases for this, right? You can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk or put your money where your mouth is? We know this is true. It's easy to say things. It's easy to talk, but there are things that test whether or not what we say is true. There's these tests that reveal what we believe. And this is the same in Christianity. There's all sorts of things that it's easy to say we believe. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, I believe the Bible is God's word. Yeah, I believe that there is a God. 
But then there are things in our life that reveal whether or not what we say we believe is actually true. So think about this one. If I were to ask you, do you believe Jesus is glorious? What would you say? If someone asked you, do you think that, there is, that Christ has glory, how would you respond? Now, yeah, amen, right? If you are a Christian, most of us would say, yeah, he does. He has glory. He is glorious. He has splendor and majesty. He's powerful. He's beautiful. Jesus is great. We would agree with that. But what we just heard read over us and what we're going to see today is that Jesus is actually going to give us two tests. Two tests that will reveal to the, de the degree that we believe that Christ has glory. These two tests are the talking to the Father and buying the ring. They expose that if whether or not what we say we actually believe is true. And here are the two tests to know what you think about the glory of Christ. Your obedience to him and your prayers to him. Your, obe your obedience and your prayers reveal what you believe about the glory of Christ. Those are the two tests. So what does your obedience and prayers reveal about your belief? If somebody had a window into your prayer life, what would they conclude is the view you have of Christ's glory? If someone got to observe your life and see the way that you obey him and live for him, would they conclude that you have a high view of Christ's glory or would they conclude that you have a low view of Christ's glory? These are the two tests that reveal what you believe about the glory of Christ. So this morning is very simple. We're going to work through the seven verses that we just read, John 14, 8 through 14. So if you've got a Bible, that is where we're going to be at. And we're just going to work through these verse by verse, one at a time. And what we're going to see is Jesus is teaching us something very simple this morning. That those who see the glory of Christ are marked by obedience and prayer. Those are the two unmistakable marks of somebody who has seen the glory of Christ. Obedience and prayer. A vision of his great glory leads us to great obedience and great prayer. So John 14, like I said, is where we are going to be at this morning. For context, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room sharing the last supper with one another. This is the last meal that they would have together and they are hours away from watching Jesus be betrayed and handed over to the authorities to be crucified. He has just finished washing their feet and is now encouraging them and Philip asks this question and really makes this statement. So verse eight, chapter 14, verse eight. Lord, said Philip, Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. In the middle of this supper, Philip asked this question. One of the disciples, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. So chapter 14 starts by Jesus saying, hey, don't, don't be troubled in your hearts. And he begins to encourage them. And as he's encouraging them, this is the statement Philip is making. Now, why is he asking that? Or why is he making this statement? What does Philip want? Well, most likely what Philip is thinking of is Old Testament prophets and characters who are being commissioned by God for a certain ministry or task and in their commissioning receive this extraordinary vision of God's glory. 
That's most likely what Philip has in mind. He's asking to see the glory of God. They're sitting here on the last night of Jesus's life. They're beginning to understand that he is entrusting to them a ministry to steward. And Philip says the most expected thing you would think, show us the father's glory. You see, for these Old Testament prophets, as they are being commissioned to this ministry of being a prophet of God, they would draw on these extraordinary visions of God's glory for their entirety of their ministry. As ministry got difficult for them, it'd be something that they went back to that would fuel and sustain them as it got difficult. And so Philip, knowing that their master is about to be handed over, is saying, Jesus, we want the ministry, but show us the Father. We have to have a vision of his glory if we are going to be able to fulfill this ministry. So he's talking about this pattern. So to get an idea of some of the things that he is wanting, here's some examples of Old Testament prophets. Moses, in Exodus 33, 18, Moses, as he is understanding the stewardship of leading Israel, he says to God, please let me see your glory. God responds in verse 20, you cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You are to stand on the rock and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So Moses asks him, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory directly, but I will allow you to experience the presence of my glory. I'll cover you in this crevice. And as I pass by, you'll be able to see my back. And so in chapter 34, Moses experiences this. It says in verse five, try to picture this scene in your mind. It says, the Lord came down in a cloud stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Here's Moses' response. So the Lord's hand is on him. He's in this crevice. He is experiencing the, glory, the, glory, the presence of God's glory. Here's his response, verse eight. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. That's Moses' experience of God's glory. Isaiah has one in Isaiah 6 as he's being commissioned to the work of being a prophet to the Israelites. God gives him a vision of his glory. Elijah has a similar one, 1 Kings 19. He's in the middle of a hard time in ministry. And here's what Elijah experiences, 1911 in 1 Kings. Then he said, go out. This is God speaking to Elijah. Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Can you picture that? Just, just tearing, wind tearing through the cliffs, shattering rocks, earthquake, fire, and then just this soft whisper of a voice. 
And that's when Elijah knows, okay, I got to wrap my face. The prophet Ezekiel, his commissioning scene is between chapter one and three of Ezekiel, just this powerful vision of God's glory. In verse four of Ezekiel chapter one, it says, I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth, a brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. Then he goes on to describe these living creatures that are worshiping God in this heavenly throne room. And finally, he gets to verse 25, and it says this, a voice came from above the expanse over the heads. When they stopped, they lowered their wings, these created creatures that were worshiping. In verse 26, something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber with what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. This vision concludes, and this is where Ezekiel finds himself in chapter 3, verse 15. I sat there among them, stunned for seven days. Just this incredible vision of God's glory. Just this all-consuming, brilliant light, this individual who is just clothed in fire, this brilliance all around him. And it is such an overwhelming experience to see the glory of God's presence that he is stunned for seven days. Can't move, just utterly just ruined beside himself. Just, oh my word, a powerful encounter of the glory of God. These prophets, they were enveloped by the glory of God. And it was these encounters with glory that compelled their ministry. It was a vision of God's glory that sustained and animated all that they did. In fact, Jeremiah, who had also an incredible encounter of God's glory, when ministry got incredibly difficult for him, which he had one of the most difficult ministries of all the prophets. This is what he says. I say, I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name. He's saying, being on ministry for God is ruining my life. I don't even want to talk about him anymore. But his message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. Jeremiah is saying, there are times I wish I could abandon this whole ministry thing, but I've been so captivated by a vision of God's glory that this message is burning within me because I've seen so clearly his glory. So here's Philip. Hours before the ministry is going to be entrusted to him and the other disciples. Hours before his master is going to be crucified and he makes the most expected request. Show us the father. Let us see a vision of his glory. Jesus, we want to do great things, but if we're going to do that, we've got to see his glory like the, old, like the prophets of old. Now that's an expected request, but it receives an unexpected answer. Look at verse nine. In response to Philip, Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? 
Wait, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Therefore, how can you say, show us the Father? How can you ask for a vision of glory? Why? Because in me, in Jesus, you have seen the glory of God. This is an incredible claim by Jesus. What he is saying is that these prophets of old, these visions that they saw of God's glory, the ones that I just read, they were a limited view, an appetizer, a glimpse. But in Christ, we have seen the full revelation of God's glory. Is that astonishing? Jesus is looking at Philip and saying, how could you ask for a vision like that when you have me? What they saw in a limited way, you have seen complete in the person of Christ. Jesus is saying these extraordinary scenes, they were limited glimpse of God's glory, but Philip in you, in me, you have seen the full revelation of God's glory. Here are other passages that affirm this. Earlier in John 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.15, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is saying, Philip, how can you ask to see a limited glimpse of God's glory when you have seen me, when I have dwelt among you? I have dwelt among you and you have seen my glory. I am the image of God. In me, the invisible God has become visible. I am the exact expression of his nature. This is extraordinary. In Christ, we have a greater picture of God's glory. Jesus was on a mission to blow minds that night. He continues, verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Jesus say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What he's saying is I completely indwell the Father. He completely indwells me and yet we are distinct, Son and Father. What he is pointing to is the reality of the Trinity, that we believe that God is one and is three distinct persons. As we continue in John 14 next week, we are gonna see Jesus expand upon this even more with the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing truth. It is a truth that goes beyond our mental uh, facilities, to faculties to, co to comprehend. How can God be both one and three persons? It's extraordinary, but it's true. God is incomprehensibly complex. He is infinite and worthy of our worship. And Jesus here is claiming to be God. He is claiming equality with God. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We have in Christ the fullness of God's glory. We have a God who is worthy of worship and adoration. He is incomprehensible and yet made visible in the person of Jesus. 
So Philip asked to see a vision of God's glory. And he says, that will be enough for us as we start this ministry. And Jesus responds, Philip, you've seen all the glory that you need to see in me. So what is the response to seeing God's glory? What is the response to seeing the glory of Jesus? Verse 11, he says this, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus is is saying, in light of what I've claimed, believe me. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And if you don't just believe my words, believe my works. This would have included all of his teachings, all that he did, and for sure it would have included the seven signs that the Apostle John recorded in his gospel. Jesus turning water to wine, healing the official son, healing the paralytic, feeding five thousands, walking on water, giving sight to the blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is saying, believe the works and believe my testimony that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, this is the purpose of all of John's gospel. We've read this verse so many times as we've worked through the gospel of John. John 20, 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. A vision of the glory of Christ moves us to belief. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Receive eternal life in his name. Okay, now when we believe, what happens? Well, the rest of this passage, Jesus is going to outline those two tests. People who have seen a vision of God's glory, seen a vision of Christ's glory, and who have believed that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, are marked by two unmistakable traits, obedience and prayer. And how you obey and how you pray reveal what you believe about the glory of Christ. These are buying the ring and asking the Father. They expose the level of your belief in the view you have of the glory of Christ. So first, a vision of glory moves us to obedience. Look at verse 12. After commanding us to believe, he says this, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. He says, the one who believes in me, the one who has seen my glory, the one who believes based on my works, he will also do the works that I do. In other words, those who have seen the glory of Christ will obey him. They will walk in obedience and surrender to him. You do the works that he did. Here's the reality. When something is important to you, when something is valuable to you, you orient your life around it. It impacts how you live. You sacrifice for it. And there are obvious marks that you find something important or valuable or precious. So ever since May, when the NFL announced the the schedule for the year, I've been looking forward to September 12th at 3.30 when the Chiefs stomp the Browns. Thank you. I'm seeing some fist pumps back there. Let's go. I've been looking forward to it. At 3.30 this afternoon, the Chiefs are going to play the Browns. They're going to absolutely wreck Baker Mayfield. Sooners, you stink. Browns, you stink. And if that is true, if we've been looking forward to 3.30 this afternoon, there should be visible marks in my life that would tell you how important that game is. Like the fact that I've been dressing my two children, my, well, my toddlers in Chiefs pajamas all weekend. It's just constant Chief gear at our house right now. Let's go. 
Uh, Natalie bought Jack another Chief sweatshirt yesterday, and I just was so happy. I was like, Natalie, anytime you spend money on Chief's gear, it's, it's approved. Let's do this. Let's go. Back in June, someone asked if we could have an event for Salt Company on February 6th, and I said, no, I'm busy. I'm going to be busy watching the Chiefs take on the Buccaneers in round two. Can't, can't do it. I'm not missing that. Here's the reality. If I were willing to skip this afternoon, if I were willing to skip February 6th when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl and get revenge on Tom Brady, let's go. If I was willing to skip that, it would reveal to you how important the Chiefs are to me. If there was nothing in my life this week that you would say, oh, he cares about the Chiefs, that would reveal it really doesn't matter. It's really not that important to me. There are obvious things in my life that would indicate to you how important the Chiefs are to me. So in a similar way, if you are willing to resist obeying Jesus, how important does that tell the world he is to you? Your resistance to embracing the commands Jesus has for us as we see them in Scripture, what does that reveal about your view of his glory? See, in a way, seeing Jesus as glorious is saying that he is important, he is valuable, he is precious. And when we worship Jesus, we are saying that he is, we are ascribing worth to him. We are saying he is worthy. And your willingness to avoid Jesus' commands reveals just how glorious you find him. Your reluctance to do the works of Jesus, compassion, serving, loving, that reveals your view of his glory. Why is it that you find it so easy to ignore his commands? It's because at least in that moment, you are not seeing him as glorious. You're not stunned by his majesty. You're not captivated by his brilliance. If you were, there would be nothing that you wouldn't do for him. Your obedience to Jesus reflects your view of his glory. If people had a window into your life, how glorious would they think Jesus is? How worthy of sacrifice would they think he is? Verse 12 continues, it says, and he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, this is a little confusing. What are these greater works that Jesus is referencing? What is he talking about when he says, we will do greater works than these? Well, let's start with what he can't mean. The greatest work ever accomplished was Jesus' death and resurrection. There's no greater work than that. So it can't mean that our, our works will be greater in the sense of a higher quality. It must be then that Jesus is referring to our works being greater in quantity and scope. So quantity on the day of Pentecost, when the church age began, it's recorded that 3,000 people gave their life to Christ. That's more than any of than the people recorded that gave their life to Christ directly because of Jesus's ministry. So that would be maybe one way to understand it, is that there's a quantity. There's also a scope. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus never came to North America. And yet here we are. <laughs> you know what's great is I can just laugh and immediately get people to laugh because my laugh is the turkey call. I can also, it's very versatile. I also can use it turkey call as a turkey call in hunting season. It's fantastic. Thank you, Jesus, for this laugh. 
The work of the church is global. It's widespread. Jesus never did ministry here. And yet here we are, like I said. So a vision of glory moves us to embrace greater works. A vision of God's, of Jesus's glory moves us to obedience and moves us to embrace greater works. Look at the glory of Jesus. You have the opportunity for greater works to give testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and to see people cross from death to life as they respond to the hope of that message. Okay, so that's the first mark. People who've seen Jesus's glory are marked by obedience. The second is a vision of glory moves us to prayer. Verses 13 and 14, here's what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, a vision of glory not only moves us to obedience, but it moves us to prayer. If we're going to embrace the works that Jesus has for our life, if we're going to participate in the greater works, then we have to pray. The glory of Christ moves us to prayer. And here's the amazing promise. It's right there. Whatever you ask, whatever, I will do it. Jesus, the glorious one, promises to respond to your prayers. What level of confidence do you have if you're trying to get in the White House and your five-year-old kid tells you, hey, I'll get you in there versus the president telling you I'll get you in there? Tremendously more confident. Jesus is absolutely glorious. And he's telling you, whatever you request, I will do. Because this brings glory to my father. Those with the greatest vision of his glory are filled with the greatest confidence in prayer. Now, what does it mean to pray in his name? Right? He says, whatever you ask in my name, what does in his name mean? Well, it means that you pray in a way that's consistent with his character and nature. Your name represents who you are. So when you pray in Jesus' name, it means that your prayers are aligning with who he is. So how do we know that? Well, we get into our Bibles. We have to know what our Bibles say. That's where we learn about his character and nature. Now, here's a classic question. So we read a verse like that, classic question. So are you saying I can get a Lamborghini if I pray hard enough? Classic question. Can I get a Lamborghini? Okay. I think if we think about it for a second, if you're praying in his name, do we think that's consistent with his nature? It sounds obvious. No, it's not. But why? Why is that not consistent with his nature? Why is it that Jesus won't give you a Lamborghini? So this weekend, we went to Texas Roadhouse. It happens to be Isla's favorite restaurant. If you want to know how I did that with my three-year-old daughter, I will tell you after the service how to get your three-year-old daughter to love Texas Roadhouse. It's fantastic. We love going there. Imagine this, we're sitting in Texas Roadhouse and I am watching and seeing all of these steaks and full racks of ribs go past on all these plates. And I'm just being amazed at just the beauty of these steak ribeyes. Now imagine as I'm sitting there waiting, finally the waitress comes up to me and says, what would you like? And I grab the kid's menu out of Jack's hand and I say, I want applesauce. After seeing all of these steaks go by, I grab the kid's menu, you know, clear the crayons away and say, I want applesauce. That would be absurd. That would be ridiculous. Why? Because I just seen the glory of steak. It is glorious. Amen. We're going to become an amen church when I say glorious steak. Let's go. Steak is glorious. Amen. Boom. Boom. 
It would be absurd to ask for applesauce when you have seen the glory of steak. That's what I'm talking about. How many of our prayers are applesauce prayers? How many of our prayers are absolutely absurd compared to the glory of Christ? You wanna know why prayer is probably so difficult for you? It's probably because you're praying applesauce prayers in Texas Roadhouse. Just absurd prayers that are so small and insignificant compared to the glory of Christ. Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Therefore, whatever you want, ask of me. Can I have applesauce? What? Our prayers need to be marked with glory and passion. What does that look like? Well, very practically, I think through the Acts model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Our prayers should be marked by adoration where we praise God. Our prayers should be marked by confession where we're vulnerable before him with our sins and insecurities. Our prayers should be marked by deep thanksgiving, thanking him for his goodness, his perfection, his grace, his power. Our prayers should be marked with supplication. That means making requests, asking, but not just applesauce requests. Think about what sort of request might honor a great God and honor a great king. What if we started praying for the 300,000 orphans in America? And God, we said, God, there are 300,000 churches and 300,000 kids in foster care. Would you work so powerfully in our heart that we would be moved with the same compassion of Jesus Christ that we as the church of America would take care of this problem like that? What if you prayed, God, there are statistically 2.3 billion Christians on earth out of 7.9 billion people. Would you so unify the church with such a vision of the glory of Christ that each one of us would lead two people to Christ and the world would be saved? What if you prayed very personally, God, would you give me a Christ-likeness that could only be explained by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing in me, only by him, that my life would so resemble the likeness of Jesus that I would leave a legacy that exalts the name of Christ and even though my name might be forgotten. Have you ever prayed for yourself like that? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that God's will is for your sanctification. Very simple. Have you ever prayed for your sanctification with power and passion? There is a time and place to pray for the upcoming test, for the car that's broken down, for the job interview. Absolutely. I am not saying that there is any request that is too small for God. But what I am saying is let us be people who have a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ who went to the cross for our sins and rose victorious over the grave and let us be moved to pray and step with a king like that. Let us have prayers that resemble his glory. And here's the reality. I know that I so often forget this. I told Natalie all week that I feel so inadequate to preach this because so often I have applesauce prayers. So often I wish my life, my life would be marked by obedience, but it's not. But here's the hope of the gospel. That hours after saying this to his disciples, Jesus would go into a garden. 
And in that garden, Jesus would walk in obedience to his father and he would say, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus would pray, pray to the point that he would sweat blood. Why? Because he knew that the path to glory was a path through the cross. That Jesus, who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only when we are captivated by the beauty and love and glory of Jesus will we be people marked by obedience and prayer. Don't lose sight of the glory of Christ. Let's be people who work to daily remind ourselves to see with fresh eyes the glory of Jesus. So it was one year ago today, uh, the second Sunday of September, that a group of us gathered in this room uh, for a night of prayer. There was an elder and his wife that we were commissioning to go overseas to take the gospel to places and people who had never heard. And I was sitting on the edge of the stage next to this elder and Isla was on my lap and I said, Isla, you know who my hero is? It's him and it's his wife. And if you know this couple, you know that they are people marked by prayer. I don't know if I've ever heard someone pray in the way that he does and she does. Prayers that are marked with passion and a vision of God's glory. And it's that vision of the glory of Christ that has led them to walk in obedience in a way that very few of us ever will. To go to a completely other country, to give up their lives for the sake of others. How are we gonna be people who are marked by obedience and prayer if we are captivated by the glory of Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that our lives would be a testimony to the work that you've done on the cross, to the victory that you had over the grave. Jesus, that you are now exalted as king over all. And God, that there is a longing within us for the day that you return and you restore all things. And we see even more clearly now the glory that you have. And God, I pray that we would be people who are so captivated by your beauty, by your power, by your glory, that we would walk in obedience to you. That by the posture of our surrender, people would see just how glorious Jesus is. And God, that we would be people who pray with passion, pray powerful requests that are according to your name, all with the confidence that you will do it. Lord, let us be a people marked by obedience and prayer as we are captivated by your glory. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.